Welcome to Health Impact's Digital Health Talks, produced by Purpose Events, hosted by the Health Impact Live team, Megan Antonelli, Emily Raish, and Shahid Shah, Health Impact Chair and CEO and Publisher of Medigy. Each week, we bring you stories from the healthcare providers and technology leaders focused on fixing America's healthcare system. They'll discuss how their organizations are using technology to improve access, equity, and quality. For more than 10 years, we have been your no BS resource for the digital health tools that matter to patients and providers. Join us every Tuesday to learn how programs in telehealth, data analytics, cloud, 5G, artificial intelligence, and machine learning are improving patient experience and health outcomes across the globe. I'm the founder of the Sharp Index, and we are a nonprofit dedicated to improving clinician mental health. And I'd love if Sharice and Emma, you could introduce yourselves and tell us more about who you are. I'll start because I can't wait to hear about Emma. I am Sharice Maynard. I am the founder of AskSharice.Tech, the co-founder of Nostra Data Medical, and a new company that I'm launching, I don't know if I even told you, Janae, it's called Fish Data, and it's all around women's data in the um, health tech, sex tech, and femtech sectors, and I'm very excited about that. But I also, in my daily work, I get to work on both sides. I work on the health tech side, and I work on the side of uh, medicine. So I get to see from both angles how patients um, and doctors deal and interact with tech and different facets of healthcare, but also how physicians are trained and how they deal with coming into the field. I call it from door to floor of dealing with technology and in, in their learning and how that impacts their journey. So that's who I am. Uh, and my name is Emma Payne, and I am the CEO and founder of a company called Grief Coach. And we are a text messaging platform that delivers ongoing expert uh, grief support to people after someone's died and also to friends and family who want to help and might not be sure how. I'm just going to let you know after this interview, I'm going to become obsessed because I think that's just an amazing idea. And I'm like, I feel like you guys need to have everybody in your database because everybody will experience grief at some time. And I, I, I want to see how that works. Yeah, I've been obsessed with you for years, so <laughs> it's fine. I, I've thought about this a lot, too, because some of the best advice I got when John died was that it's harder after everyone forgets. Mm-hmm. Like it's harder. And I think I spoke to you some during that time when it was like, you're still in the midst of things and people ask you what they can do. And mm. you're like, mm, good question. Like, don't know, but uh... we, yeah, like that experience. And yes, you're right. That is the space you were in when we met Janae. Like that is what we do so beautifully because everyone has the same experience. Somewhere around two, three months, everyone's gone back to their jobs and their normal life. And the grieving person, maybe the shock has worn off enough and the grief is even more, like the, the pain is, is, is high, right? You're in acute grief and everyone else has gone back to work. Maybe you've been required to go back to work because guess what? Your company has no bereavement benefits or a paid leave policy. And so we're sending these texts that sometimes I read them and they just, bring tears to my eyes. We work with people that focus on some that work with acute grief. And we're texting not just you, 
when your husband has died and you're at three months past the time and everyone's vanished, we're texting you, but we're also texting the friends and family who probably you do have people that want to help and they just don't know what to do. So yeah. we're telling them, we're telling them, hey, you know, tomorrow will be three months since John died. A lot of people will be going back to their regular lives. So this is a really good time for you to reach out to Janae right. and see if she wants to go for a walk tomorrow morning. Just empathetic and practical and over time. And, and it's incredible how, you know, that's what people want. People want to help, actually. We just don't know what to do. And if you ask the grieving person, what can I do to help? They're like, uh, I don't even know how to tie my shoes. It's putting more onus on the griever and we're trying to take it away. You don't have to do anything. Just sign up. We'll send you stuff and we'll send stuff to your husband so that he knows better how to support you when your dad died. Yeah. I think that can be really, it can be really isolating. And I've thought about that more recently, even in terms of like people are going through all these, all these stressful events on stressful events. And um, it's isolating. Like, and even when you're trying to find support, like it doesn't exist. <laughs> like if even let's assume you have all the money in the world, you know, let's assume the current healthcare environment where nurses are, you know, nurses are like everybody's quitting. And sometimes you're like, well, I get it, you know. I'm curious about what what you've seen. Like how are things? Like, what is it's the state of people that you've seen? Yeah, so our clients are often healthcare providers, mm -hmm. hospices, people who are required to provide 13 months of breathing support. Every single one of them is understaffed. Every single one of them has less people than they need, particularly in the social work bereavement care space, right? Everyone's exhausted. We, we sold to like a hospice in Nevada. Two weeks later, the bereavement coordinator's husband died. Like 57% of working age Americans are grieving a recent loss, at least. We have a 19% increase in mortality from 2019 to 2020, which is like a spike we haven't seen in 100 years. Mm -hmm. So the feeling that you have, which is like everyone's struggling, is not just a feeling, it's fact. That's what's happening. But we don't have the systems, the bereavement benefits, the policies, the support mechanisms to support the, even the previous volume, never mind the new volume. Right. Like everyone's struggling and you can't, like you said, Janae, like, let's assume that you live in a city where there are therapists and you can afford the 200 bucks an hour. Even then you can't find someone. You're going to have a six month wait yeah. list if you're lucky. Yeah, sure. And that's and that's assuming that you don't have the barriers that most of us have. And grief disproportionately impacts the populations that can't access that support anyway. Right. It's it's it's. That is what we see all day and every day. And that is why I think that we have the feedback that we do from the subscribers themselves, the people getting texts. People say like, oh, Emma, the work must be really depressing working in grief. I'm like, nope. All day, every day, we have people sending us like hearts and thumbs up and thank you so much. And this is really helpful. And oh, my husband made a reservation at my dad's favorite restaurant and la 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 la. Like the gratitude. <laughs> from people when they are getting, when someone is listening to them and giving them some useful support is so high. And that's why, because it's hard to get help. You feel isolated. So you're just happy that someone's sending you stuff that's useful, right? Right. That's, that's useful. I'm interested in what you said about how it disproportionately impacts populations that don't have access. What does that mean? 
well, like, I, I mean, don't. I believe it and I know, yeah, I mean, you know, you know I, I don't have the data in front of me, but it's something like, you know, a black 10 year old child is, you know, three times more likely to have lost a parent and right. The more rural populations, we get really interesting responses from people in rural populations because they can't, there's more death, mm-hmm. but less support groups, right? The populations, um, both geographically and demographically, that are statistically more likely to experience loss earlier in their lives, and then what are the repercussions of that unsupported grief over time, are also less likely to live in a place or have the bank balance that allows them to get support. But again, even if they could, even if they're that population, the wait lists and shortages of trained professionals right now are making it impossible anyway. Mm-hmm. And even um, more than that, it's strange, this particular conversation that I had last night in a group when we were talking completely about access. You know, I always say that I kind of get in trouble for this question because I tend to be more honest about it. It's like you can stick stick access on every corner. And that does not mean that people can actually um, engage in it in a way that helps them. Because when you look at these marginalized populations, not only if even if you get across the threshold that they can have access to it, that they can afford to pay for it. They don't trust it. So they're not likely to engage with certain things if they just see a pop-up um, clinic in their neighborhood and that type of thing. And it's like, I don't know these people. And historically, we've been treated bad by these systems. So yeah. they don't seek out the help. And again, if we're talking about the innovations in the space, and some certainly uh, innovation like you're providing, it allows people to engage in a way that they don't have to be all the time face-to-face with someone they may not trust, but it allows them to engage in a way that's comfortable and safe for them, which is the most important thing. If I need to reach out for something, I may not go into that um, behavioral health office, but but I might call somebody. I might text somebody and say, hey, I'm feeling a little down today. Can you help me through this? Or, you know, I'm hanging by a thread here and that type of thing. People are more like, I find, if they don't trust the system, they will engage in other ways just to keep themselves afloat, you know? I think that's why we have these, it's one of the reasons definitely, well, I mean, people tell us this is one of the reasons that we're used as much as we are is because it's non-invasive, it's text, Mm -hmm. we're used to using text for personal things. So right now, about 9% of our subscribers globally are men and 90% percent are women and that number has actually been inching up a bit from like six percent seven eight nine so now we're at about nine percent but we just have been doing a ton of research this year and looking at our data in different ways and what we've now found is that although they are a small percentage they're love it the most and i think it's back to the populations certain let's use guys in this case are less likely to go out and get support if they're grieving and they might be less trusting of a certain you know, whatever, pop-up clinic, or they don't want to sit in a support group, or they don't want to share with strangers or whatever, but they'll take text. Yep. And then they love it even more than our, like, average baseline because it's what they're getting. It's all they're getting often, right? They're not talking to their friends. They're not going to support groups. They're not reading a book. They're getting this thing. It's easy. They can sort of trust the sources because it's a bunch of expertise. It's not one person telling them what to do or what to feel. It's a range of opinions and thoughts that they can draw on over time. I went I had a dinner like two weeks ago with one of our subscribers, which is a cool experience. A guy my age, probably like 50-ish, I would guess. And he was like, received a subscription as a gift when his dad died. And he thought, this is kind of goofy. Like, who wants text? I don't need any help. 
he has now bought more gift subscriptions for other people than any single one of our <laughs> subscribers. And he buys it all for guys. And they're all having the same response. Like at first they think, I don't really need this. But then, yeah, you do. It's It can be crippling when someone dies and there's no one to talk to about it. And you don't trust other things that you might go to. But text is accessible and easy and it's personalized, right? It has your actual dad's name in it and your name in it. And it knows we know what the cause of death was so we can speak to the suicide if it was a suicide. If you were a caregiver for many years before the death, we'll speak to the caregiver experience and the relief that you might experience. And that's normal too. It's like that normalizing personal support that we all want when, when we're struggling. Right. You should share with everyone how you got into that space. Like, why I started that? Yeah. Yeah, not sure. Um, so my friend died in 2015, at the end of 2015, and he had asked me to speak at his funeral, which I agreed to do. But it was a very, very daunting proposition because he was the best friend and also second cousin of my husband who had died a decade prior by suicide. So essentially what I had agreed to do was fly across the country Um and stand in front of a couple hundred people, many of whom I had not heard from when when Barry died. So it was a scary thing to do, and I did it. And in the end, I come to think of that as like the biggest gift ever from my friend, because I spent 72 hours from the moment I sat in my pew to the pub night <laughs> with people saying, oh my goodness, you're Barry's widow. I'm sorry, sorry, I didn't reach out. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know anyone who had died before. Then so much time passed. Then I felt guilty. And I got on my plane ride home. I'm like, this is the stupidest. I spent 10 years not hearing from people and inventing all kinds of reasons why that may be. And Janae, you know, you probably had some of that experience too, like with a suicide death, especially. I was like, in invent the reasons why I'm not hearing from people. But I, mean, I didn't. I was just like, they can't handle it. Okay. Like, okay. Like, or it hurt more than like, anything. It it felt like it made me understand better why he died mm. because he had reached out for help to people. And I was like, people act like there's all this help, but we don't know how to help people. We don't know how to deal with death. Like, no, you die alone. Like, and when Again. they go through death, like these people were not there for him. Like, mm. even if they well, tried and to it's be also I mean, like, that's what it felt like. It felt like, well, so I mean, it is, it's such an isolate. It's very, it, the experience of being in deep pain and not being able to find a way to talk about it with someone who will listen to you is hard And that. And you're right. And that way there are similar things. And that's why like on my plane ride home from the funeral, I'm like, this is insane. I've spent 20 years building like, like mobile and text solutions to help people in all kinds of different situations. There's got to be something for grief. Like, can't we just text expertise to the griever and text some date reminders to the people that love them period yeah so maybe it's i didn't approach it the same way where i made up excuses i was just like well oh, yeah you, you probably had a help there i was more like oh my god they think i'm a murderer you know yeah <laughs> i was like yeah i always think that people don't know what to do or they don't know because the other thing is, like I always say, life does walk in. So those people who were there for you, like at, at the funeral and right after, they do have to get back to uh, their normal day, ADLs as activities of daily living, right? So when it comes to, first, I always think, and I say this from, like I said, because of my own experience, it's like, 
you don't know if what you're saying to them is a bad reminder of something. You don't know if it'll be triggering for them. So you don't know mm-hmm. what you should be doing. Um, but also, it it makes you in a way also feel helpless. And yeah. then the the time factor comes in. So you're like, yeah. oh, I should have sent that before, oh. but now it's been so late. They're gonna think it's you know not mm-hmm. genuine. That time, all those things were are at work. Yes, um, we text people. You think no one's thinking about, but really they are. And the only way right. is again. <laughs> so, and we text people exactly that. Uh-huh. Like people think, people think, oh, I don't want to, you know, reach out. I don't want to upset them. Yeah. Well, they're already upset, right? So we can text the person and say, the person's upset already. <laughs> Unless you can recreate <laughs> their love. Why don't you share, you know, share a story about John and how mm-hmm. funny he was when the kids were born or whatever. Like, because people think that they have to somehow take the pain away. And so we give the supporters a clear understanding that you cannot. Right. You know, if the person starts crying when you're talking to them, consider that a gift. That's healing. They're mm-hmm. sharing. You don't need to feel bad that the person is crying to just give people those, these basic pieces of expertise. And there's something I just want to say that's really important. Like, so that's nice. Great. Give people the expertise. But the thing is, this works. When we're grieving, we're angry, we're very vulnerable, right? We're at increased risk for everything from anxiety, depression, substance use, sleep issues, hospital visits, illness, suicidal ideation, and incompletions. Like we're hugely at risk when we're grieving, never mind lost work, workplace accidents, and so on. If you get a bit of support and understanding in the way that we're delivering it, your chances of all of those outcomes reduces. It's so Mm -hmm. simple. Give people that little bit of comfort that it's okay to reach out and share a story about John, and you don't need to worry if Janae starts crying, and then this works, and then all of a sudden we don't have all these like negative healthcare outcomes that are commonly associated with bereavement. Like sometimes I'm just like the simplicity of it is what's incredible. Right. You know? Like we're not waiting for the invention of a vaccine here. We have the wisdom. Mm-hmm. We just deliver it to people in a way that is accessible and that they'll trust it. That they'll that they'll take it. Mm-hmm. It's like I try to convince on the policy side, trying to convince my clients, when they talk to me about their policies on bereavement and that type of thing, I'm like, why don't you just offer it as part of your FMLA? Yep. Because be. <laughs> the grief process is a part of your family. You're, if you yep. start a family and someone leaves that family, your family is in essence dying too. So that's yep. part of the process. So from a policy place, the whole bereavement issue, I think should be a no brainer for people. And if Companies were able to offer a service like this as part of that package. That would be awesome, I would think. Yeah, they can. They can sign. They, we're yeah. happy to have them. We have some employers that offer it as a bereavement benefit. Mm-hmm. Working with be. EAPs I, so that they can deliver it to the employers, right? Yeah, I mean, it's a no. It is a no-brainer. And it, or if you look at all, even some of the things that are going on now nowadays in offices where people get offices shut up, um, shot up, or schools. And they lose team members or people who they work with. Yeah, I was about to ask that. Like, how does this like work? Grief for, like, grief counseling and stuff, it should be a part of the makeup of the organization. I agree. Like, how does that work for healthcare? Like, when um, we just talked to a group that had lost a physician to suicide. And um, it's interesting to see, I mean, the same patterns. Like, when people come talk to me, it's the same conversation where they have this huge need to talk about it that hasn't mm-hmm. been met mm-hmm. and it's been a little bit overwhelming during covid and now 
um, talking to people who are quitting healthcare, talking, there's just so much to carry. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, um, that's why, like, is the text going to cut it? Do you think let's, it's a large, it's a large, I'm like, I have some questions. Yeah, no, they're the, um, so we have 54 relationships in the grief coach system, or actually 56, because we just added twin brother and twin sister, 56 relationships. That's kind ranging, of cool. ranging from things like, you know, husband, daughter, blah, blah, blah. But we also have patient, right? Um, caregiver, physician. We have text messages that are written specifically for clinicians that speak about all the loss that they see and how it is still, you know, you don't have to bring an inhuman uh, version of yourself to work. All those things informed by people like Wei Wen Sato, who's an amazing pediatric um, ICU nurse who focuses in clinicians in grief. Uh, people like Megan Devine, who has a whole series of um, clinicians in grief. So these things we're now delivering via text. And if people choose those relationships in the system, we send them that support. In terms of will text cut it? I've started to think about, so there's a pyramid that people, when they're sort of using a public health approach to bereavement, you know, 90% at the bottom, 5% at the top. Um, we do an excellent job with those bottom two tiers. And then we're kind of triaging for an organization. If an organization, so right now we're working with um, a very large charity in the UK called Sue Ryder, and they are now using us to deliver free grief support for everyone in the UK. Wow. And so... When people come in, an incredible number, 95% of the people that we survey say, this is really helping with my grief. And there are these people. But it also then lets us sort of like triage to the top, the people that want more. And so then these large charities, hospices can figure out where to put their precious hours of bereavement care that they actually have to deliver face-to-face -face there, right? Put, the, put your time where you need it. And then the bereavement coordinators themselves are so relieved because all of a sudden, everyone can get something and they can figure out where to spend their time instead of going home every day, realizing that they only reached out to, you know, four of the 800 people on their, on their caseload. Yeah. We've talked about that somehow. Um, technology can be a good way to help identify who, mm -hmm. who needs more support. Um, mm -hmm. In Sharp Indexes, our work, we also found that, the worst, the people who were the worst off did not want to engage. And I wondered if you have, like, do you measure where people are at? Like, I wondered if text would lower that barrier, honestly, because it's not like I have to tell Cherise <clears throat> I'm struggling, which is a hard conversation to have, especially as like a clinician, like a mm -hmm. physician's not going to want to tell people that. Like, have you found that? Like, are we do get some, so we do, so my subscriber support team are all trained mental health professionals because we do get some crisis inbounds, right? Okay. Maybe, you know, out of a few, out of, out of a thousand new subscribers, maybe 10 of them would be. That's what a we, lot, by the way. That's a it lot. It is not a small number. Yeah. So back to this sort of. Yeah. Triage model. I mean, a hospice. So like. Let's use hospice with the Western Reserve. So this is a large hospice that we work with in Ohio. They see about 6,000 deaths a year. They have like a 12-person bereavement team whose job it is to support people. And, you know, grief doesn't just last for a year. So right. 
And then they're being asked now to reach out and do community support. So it's not even hospice families. It's okay. There's been a school shooting or there's a school suicide. And now we need you to go out into the school because hospices have this 12 person bereavement team. But can you imagine how maxed those people are? And people don't go into bereavement. Yeah, talk to some of them. It's terrible. <laughs> right? So, it, and you don't go into bereavement for no reason. You're probably there because you actually really care about this work, but then you cannot meet demand. You, you cannot. It's impossible. And so this idea that we can make sure everyone gets something and that text will seem, I mean, I'm not making up the 95%. That's all of our surveys. That's the lowest response. That's the lowest percentage of people who have said, these texts help me with my grief. Mm-hmm. So it's at least a way to figure out where to put those 12 people's hours right. every day, you know. Is it mostly for acute? Like, let's say you have someone who, like a healthcare worker, we'll use a healthcare worker, who has lost someone, you know, or who has lost a patient and they just kept working, you know, maybe they are still not recovered from the trauma of COVID. Um, oh my gosh, do you like- do you, I've got to send you some of our caregiver, like our clinician texts, because they're some of my favorites. They're so beautiful in the way that they speak to people who actually spend their days in these spaces. I'll send you some as examples, but yeah. Uh, so we have acute uh, for sure, but we also have, like we work with Hope Edelman. I don't know if you're familiar with her work, but she's a very well-known author and her latest book is called, um, this, she writes about the long arc of grief, after the after grief. So that's for people who are at least three years out from the loss. So the texts change depending how far you are from the death and also how far you are from when you signed up. So we have people coming in from a death that was in like the 80s. And this is just like an accessible way for them to get some support that they didn't get back then. And for sure, the experience of having lost so many patients and not knowing where to put those put those feelings. Yeah, so the timeline, the timeline doesn't matter mm-hmm. for time in any time. That's good to know. But how do we get it out there to everybody, you know? That's the question. Mm-hmm. It exists and it's working. So how do we get it out? How do we put it in people's hands? That's a good point because there's a huge gap in healthcare. Like there's a gap with engagement. There's a gap with getting things going. Like the health tech sales cycle is notoriously mm-hmm. discouraging. It's very just, it's hard. What do you think, Sharice? Maybe you know about that. The sales site, well, discouraging might be too strong a, a word. Yeah, I think it's, it's really not. It's like, yeah. <laughs> I think it's inefficient. I think the way we, um, dim, the way we build around sales cycles is inefficient. I think, I don't know. I think the way we use um, healthcare in this country, the way we set it up, the way we sell tech and all that kind of stuff is kind of counterintuitive to caring about people. <laughs> It's like we always we're always looking at the ROI. You know, I always say that one of the um when you're a particular person like me, we wear, we wear the I have an MBA, so we have to wear that hat when we're dealing with healthcare organizations. And one of the conversations I get in often now is, you know, a decade a little bit more than a decade ago, we were telling these organizations that they needed to start looking at data as an asset on their books. And it was people were laughing at us like, what are we going to do with their data and all that? Nowadays, we're trying to get them. You need to stop using that as like you own it. 
It's like completely turned. So when we look at the different solutions and stuff we're trying to sell in healthcare, it is not the environment of care. It doesn't like, you know, one of the things I say often, Janae might have heard me say it in a couple of speeches, like you can't pay people to care. What we're in healthcare IT set up to do is to get others to buy into the idea of our solution. So when you look at grief, it's like from a healthcare IT side, 100% people will look like, well, how do we package that up? You know, how do we, <laughs> grief isn't sexy. <laughs> Or so like, yeah, where's the margin? Where's the right. margin, guys? And also, yeah. and also, like by definition, the patient has just died, so the healthcare system actually stops. That's what I'm saying. It's like they're but, like, oh, we're out of it, and that's why I always say that we need to look at the end of life as a continuation of the process, not the end of that process, because um, support needs to happen around the whole process, and it's not that just the person dying. Even if you look at like palliative care and that type of thing, it's affecting a lot of people. And those people have um, a wholeness to them that needs to be taken care of. So like I said, our our approach is more of a, I call it a one-off approach. Like, okay, we're going to take care of this patient until they're no longer a patient. Then then everybody needs to go away, take their money and walk away, you know? But what it should be is like, is like, how can we perform a circle of care that we're taking care of the patient and those who take care of the patient, so to speak. But we have completely, I believe, failed at that. Like, we have more options now, but it's not something that we've tried to scale or that we've seen as a part of the whole, so to speak, because we now know, and we've known for some time, that you can't separate mental and physical health. One feeds the other. So if someone's going through change, even someone who's going through um, their own challenge where they know they're going to die, you know, Right now, I'm dealing with cancer myself. Every time I go to get my blood work done, I'm like praying. But I know one day that's not going to turn out so well for me. So it's like the person is going through these changes. There should be some support that helps them and the people who care for them. Like 100%, I tell my husband every month, you really need to see somebody about your anxiety around my situation. (laughs) Because it's like, I'm the sick one, but I spend all my time taking care of how he's responding to my sickness. You know, it's our little joke, but it it is real. The people who take care of the person are going through their own thing. Uh, So, you know, I think from a health IT perspective, we need to stop looking at people as this thing we have to sell to and this thing we have to make money from instead of saying, hey, we need to take care of the whole person and then the money will come. Because it certainly will. If you are um, providing something that, first of all, is preventive or that stabilizes, or that create, takes care of the wholeness of a person, the world will be the path to your door. You don't have to um, close off and say, oh, no, we're only going to take care of you until you're dead. And then... <laughs> yeah, and right now, so we're in the midst of building grief coach caregiver, which right. will be for people after a diagnosis, mm-hmm. particularly a terminal diagnosis, so that we can be on the whole journey, right? And let's see what measures we can impact in terms of the quality of the death and how anxiety was measured towards those ends and how many interventions there were and so on. And then continue to support that caregiver after the death. Right now, we're only after the death. So we're building out. (laughs) Because you're totally right. It's a journey. You don't. don't, If your wife is given a terminal diagnosis, you don't wait until she dies to start grieving. Right. (laughs) Right. Okay, I have one question. Like, 
what's the best thing that you've had from this experience of building an out grief coach? Oh, I have never, uh, I've been lucky. There's lots of work that I've done over the years that I felt really good about, but never like this. This was the first, um, so it was the anniversary of Barry's death in August. And it was the first, every year the anniversary is like a real struggle for me. And I just I find it very, very difficult. This year I went ziplining with my kids and felt great. And I was like, oh my gosh, grief coach has freed me from my own grief in some way, because I just feel like I'm being so helpful and so useful to so many people all day and every day as we see the feedback come in. So grief coach has, has, has somehow let me tie a bow around my own grief journey, which is pretty amazing. Thank you. I always say that's how life gives back to us. Mm -hmm. Take it and life must replace it. Thank you for joining us for this week's Health Impacts Digital Health Talk. Don't miss another podcast. Subscribe at digitalhealthtalks.com. And to join us at our next face-to-face -face event, visit healthimpactlive.com.